Uh, turn in your copy of God's Word to Titus chapter 1. Uh, we've begun a uh, series in Paul's letter to uh, pastor of uh, Crete Presbyterian Church. Uh, he's left Titus there, sent Titus back uh, to do some work, and now he's writing this letter uh, to Titus. Um, it's our practice to stand when we read God's Word together. Uh, so if you are able to do that, let me ask that you stand now. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 9, because verse 9 is uh, a bit of a bridge from 5 to 9, and then the, the next section too. So there's actually a, a connection uh, there. Titus 1, beginning in verse 9. He, that is the, the elder or the overseer that would be appointed in the local church, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Uh, we pray, O Holy Spirit, as uh, the author of these words, that You would now be our teacher as well that we might know them, understand them, and more importantly, uh, be conformed uh, to the image of Christ. For it's in His name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So as, as you can tell, as you may or may not be aware, I guess, uh, maybe you are, uh, the work of church planting, which we are doing, uh, the work of church planning is, is there's no like cookie cutter model. Like there's not a book that you can go get and say, you know, step one, do this. Step two, do this. And, you know, by, after 12 steps, you're done. And, you know, everything's complete and you're now a 600 member church and everything's. There's no like, there's no formula. There's no book out there that tells you here are the steps of church planting here's kind of the way to go part of the reason for that is because well not only are church planters different but contexts are different the settings are different the the communities into which churches are planted are different from place to place people to people time to time the context in which you minister, the context into which a church is planted actually matters. It affects the kinds of uh, trouble you deal with. It affects the kinds of people you interact with. It affects uh, the speed with which you grow. It affects all sorts of things. Paul's writing a letter 
to Titus, who has been a part of planting, presumably it appears, part of planting this church, the initiation of uh, the church in Crete on this little island in the Mediterranean, um, and has now been sent back by Paul or left there. They went back to visit it, it seems, and then he leaves Titus there to put some things in order that aren't yet in order. We see that in the first few verses. He's left Titus in a church plant. Because you're told in verse 5, this is why I left you there, appoint elders. The goal is to have elders there. So he's left Titus in the context of a church plant on the island of Crete. But this passage gives us a glimpse into his context. It gives us a, a pretty good glimpse into the kinds of people that they're dealing with there on the island of Crete. And notice, first of all, uh, who the people are in the church in Crete. Look at the end of verse 10. There's a phrase there right at the end of verse 10. Uh, there are many who are like this, especially those of the circumcision party. Now that word, especially. See, sometimes you go to church to learn Bible content. Sometimes you actually learn grammar along the way. That word of that word especially would normally sort of narrow the focus. In other words, there's a large group of people who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, but especially a smaller set, a subset of that large group who are who belong to this thing, this group called the circumcision party. Maybe they were the largest group. Maybe they were the most influential group. Whatever the case, Paul focuses especially on those who are of the circumcision party. It's possible, however, there are other places where this Greek word that we've translated especially really means more like that is or uh, those who are. In other words, it's a continuation uh, of the thought, not a narrowing of the thought. Namely, those of the circumcision party. In other words, it's entirely possible, grammatically speaking, that all of those who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers belong to this group called the circumcision party. Whatever the case, whichever of those is true, the circumcision party is a, a strong, influential group on the island of Crete. They are false teachers. They're insubordinate. They're empty talkers. They're deceivers. They're causing trouble for uh, the church on the island. They are causing trouble for believers. But they belong to this group called the circumcision party. But what is that? Okay, that may, you may tell us who they are, but you haven't really told us who they are. Turn with me. By the way, I should have said early on. Turn with me to, um, to Acts chapter 2. I should have said early on, um, you're not going to want to close and put away your Bible. You're going to need it again. You're going to need it a couple of times, uh, actually. So, uh, in Acts chapter 2, it's a passage that 
that you know. Most of you are familiar with um, with Acts two and Paul uh, Peter's sermon at Pentecost and the whole discussion of speaking in tongues, which are certainly in Acts two foreign languages, not gibberish sounds. But notice in Acts 2, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, that's other languages, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Look at verse 5. There were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, now notice where this group came from. As the group of Jews from all these other nations are hearing the apostles speak, they hear them speaking in their own native tongue. And they're going, wait, these people are all like Galileans. What are they doing speaking my language? Well, notice where all these people are coming from. Verse 7, they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear them, each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. Wait, did you hear that word? Cretans. These are predominantly Jewish background people from the island of Crete who have who were presumably there in Jerusalem to hear Peter's sermon and have now gone back to Crete and have become a part of this church plant there on the island of Crete. With their Jewish background, they had a commitment to rules, laws, Predominantly man-made as they were. The, the commandments of men. It was generally assumed among so many in the circumcision party that for Greeks, for Gentiles, for non-Jews to become Christians, they had to pass through Judaism to get there. Judaism was sort of that room right outside these doors. In order to get into this room for worship on Sunday, you have to pass Enter through the outside door and you have to pass through their gathering space before you can come into this room for worship. Before you can, can become a Christian as a Gentile, you have to pass through Judaism. You have to be circumcised. You have to be taught and, you know, keep the food laws and marriage laws and all sorts of rules and laws and customs, many of which they had created... We'll give them the benefit of the doubt. We did this when we preached through uh, Luke. We, we'll give them the benefit of the doubt. There are Ten Commandments. And if I don't want to break the Ten Commandments, then what if I add a couple hundred more to them to, to build the fence further away so that I can be sure I don't break the Ten Commandments by not breaking the extra 150 that stand between me and the Sixth Commandment. If I add to... That's what they were doing. That's in essence what... The circumcision party, the, the Jews of that century were doing. They wanted to mandate that Greeks, Gentiles, adhere to Jewish laws and customs in order to become Christians. Let me show you just an example of this. Turn to Matthew 15. 
We get a pretty good glimpse of this in, in Matthew chapter 15. Jesus and His uh, disciples then have this interaction with the Pharisees and scribes, the, the Jewish leaders of the day. Matthew 15, verse 1, Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the law of God? Are you, are you looking? It's not what it says. Why do you and your disciples break the traditions of the elders? Hey, Jesus, you and your disciples, I mean, I'm not sure you're breaking God's law, but you're breaking the traditions of the elders. Do you hear what they're doing? They're setting the commandments of men up as the standard by which to measure Jesus, you know, Jesus and his disciples. And of course, it's in uh, that context, Jesus challenges their, their reliance, their dependence on the traditions of men. Notice his response. He answered them, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? That's the circumcision party. Those are the kinds of people in the context of uh, Crete Presbyterian Church. CPC. We'll, we'll call it CPC from now on. A Crete Presbyterian Church. Um, and Titus as uh, the, the pastor church planter there on the island of Crete. The circumcision party is saying, Jesus is great, but you also need these other things. They're teaching a salvation by Jesus plus. I, yes, by faith alone, uh, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus circumcision, plus keeping the, the dietary food laws, plus these other customs. And Paul says in this passage that a Jesus plus gospel is not a gospel at all. You can see this in his letter to the church in Galatia, the churches in Galatia as well. So that's who uh, these false teachers are. What are they like? Uh, notice verse 12. They're just like all the other Cretans. They're just like everybody else. Liars, evil beasts, Lazy gluttons. Now, it's one thing. It's one thing for an Auburn fan to call Alabama folks mean, hateful words. It's one thing for Republicans to say mean, nasty things about Democrats. It's one thing for you know, those political parties to call each other lazy beasts, evil gluttons, and point the finger. But you know, when it comes to your own tribe, you kind of feel an obligation to pitch them in the best light. This is, this is a Cretan philosopher. This is a Cretan poet. This is Epimenides, some 600 years B.C. A guy who actually is cited by people like, oh, you know, small minds, like Aristotle, Plato, and people like that. They quote 
from Epimenides. They cite him even in their own works. He's the one saying, yeah, these Cretans are all liars. They're all evil beasts. They're all lazy gluttons. It's one of their own says that about people on the island of Zeus and his hymn, I mean on the island of Crete, to his hymn to Zeus. You would think, you would think he'd feel an obligation to say the best things he can about his own people. And yet, he's very clearly giving a, an accurate description of the people on Crete. They have national cultural sins. And he's giving a, a fair and accurate uh, description of what those cultural sins are. We have our own. We have our own here in Athens. We have the, our own in the United States. We have our own national sort of cultural sins that are just woven into the fabric of our country these days. I mean, abortion is right up at the top of the list. Aberrant views of, of sexuality and marriage have now climbed right up there to the top of the list. National cultural sins. We call things good that God calls evil. Cretans, generally speaking, are liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. They don't tell the truth. Uh, they care only about their own passions and comforts and um, really don't want to work for them. Uh, their God is their belly. Uh, lazy gluttons, their God is their belly. They pursue almost animal-like, without thought, without reason, uh, without understanding and knowledge. They just pursue their own instincts. And notice Paul, verse 13, agrees. The testimony of Epimenides is true. It's accurate. But notice verse 10. Not only are they uh, liars, uh, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, but they're also insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers. They rebel against those in authority. But not just people. Not only are they rebelling against Paul, not only are they, they disobedient to the Apostle Paul, but they're insubordinate. They're disobedient to the commands of God. God's Word is our, our final authority in life and in faith. In faith and in practice. And they are disobedient. They have no interest in submitting to God's authority in His Word. The Gospel of Grace says we've been freed from the, the law as a means of salvation. You can't earn your God's favor. You can't gain your salvation through any deeds of your own. And if that's what God's Word says, then to violate that is to be insubordinate to the authority of God's Word in our lives. They demand Jewish myths and the commandments of people who turn away from the truth. Verse 14. They're empty talkers and deceivers. The last thing they would want to hear. When someone comes along who claims to have insider knowledge. When someone comes along and claims to have the secret scoop. 
When someone comes along and claims to be the final authority on this issue or that issue, on salvation by grace plus, salvation by Jesus plus, on the final authority on understanding the role of the law in our lives. When someone comes along and, and claims that for themselves, claims to be, look, you need to come over. We need to get together. Because I got some, I got, I got some insider knowledge. Let me help you with how to understand. Right? They think they're authorities. Paul says their words are empty, meaningless. That, that what they think is so vastly important and invaluable in your life and so necessary and so required, Paul says they're empty talkers. They're wasting their breath. What they're saying is really nothing at all. And they're being deceptive in the way they're gathering a following. They're teaching a Jesus plus theology. Jesus plus circumcision. Jesus plus food laws. Jesus plus Christians don't drink. Jesus plus Christians don't eat bacon. Jesus plus, if you really want to be a super Christian, then you'll do these things and you'll not do those things. Yes, it's okay. Aren't you so glad to live after Christ? We get to eat bacon. One of the joys of new covenant life. Jesus plus something man-made. Jesus plus going without that. See, sometimes plus can actually be a negative. Jesus plus... Not getting married. Jesus plus not having this. Jesus plus not eating pork. Jesus plus going without. They're adding to. Their, their theology is a Jesus plus theology. Jesus plus not eating those things that are good and pure. That's part of Paul's point in verse 15, by the way. To the pure, all things are pure. Notice there's an implication there in verse 15. Not to those who are have become pure by their efforts, but it's those who are pure. And it's, it's sort of implied and understood that you kind of are made pure not through your own merits. And so to those who are pure, everything is pure. All things are pure. To those who are pure in Christ, everything else, all things are pure already. That's part of what Peter went through in Acts chapter 10. Peter's sitting on the roof. He has this vision of all these animals on his giant blanket being lowered down and hearing a voice that says, Arise, kill, and eat. You and I see a pig on that blanket and say, Yes. Peter says, no, nothing unclean has ever touched my lips. You remember God's response? Don't call unclean that which I declare to be clean. Three times he has this vision. It takes three times for Peter to get it. Huh, maybe I, God's saying it's okay to eat these things now. Maybe God's saying those, those food laws of the old covenant are now gone in Christ. That maybe... 
eating these animals, these animals are now pure. They're now clean because of Christ. Peter was trusting in his own external purity. Which is what the people in the circumcision party were doing. They were trusting in their own external purity. We have legalists all around us. People who say, you're saved by keeping these rules, saved by keeping these laws. They're trusting in an external purity, not a purity from within. I'm pure because I wash my hands before I eat. I'm pure because bacon has never touched my lips. I'm pure because I don't eat this or don't drink that. Christ says it's not what goes in your mouth that makes you unclean. It's what comes out of it. Because what comes out of it comes out of your heart. Purity is, is internal and moral. And it's, it comes from a change of heart when you trust in Christ given to those believers who trust in Him for their salvation. To those who are pure, all things are pure. To those who are defiled, everything's defiled already. Paul envisions not an external purity that comes from what you do, but there's an internal purity that leads to what you do being pure. Who are these false teachers? What are they like? What are these teachers, these false teachers doing? Look at verse 16. Notice they claim to be Christians. They profess to know God. Their, their profession, their, their voice says, I'm a believer. I'm a Christian. I trust in God. They have made some public profession of faith in Christ. Now we know. We know what Matthew 7.1 says. Or 7.21 says. That not, not everyone who says to Christ, Lord, Lord, will see eternal life. Not everyone who cries out to Him, Lord, Lord, is truly saved. We know that. But if we were to actually make that judgment in time and space today, and say, you know, I know this person who says they're a believer... For us to then evaluate, I'm not sure they are. It's a pretty difficult step for us. It's a pretty, it's a pretty bold step for us to try to make. We know in general that not everyone who claims to be a Christian really is. We know that. But it, when it comes to actually putting a name with a face, or a face with a title or a description, we get really nervous. We think of it as, as way too intolerant, uh, way too uh, uh, judgmental for our world today. But these are people who profess to know God and yet they deny Him by their works. Do you know the rest of Matthew 7.21? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That's what Paul says in verse 16. Their words and their actions don't match up. What they claim for themselves, they profess to know God, and yet by their false teaching, by their behavior, the two things don't go together. They don't fit. They don't match up. These false teachers are professing Christians. But notice what else they're doing. Verse 11, they're causing trouble in the church 
by causing distress in entire households. They must be silent since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Entire families are being turned upside down because they've been dragged into the lies that the circumcision party has been teaching. There's an implied warning here, right? When someone says to you, hey, let's get together. I want to come talk to you about this. I've got this little tidbit of knowledge. I've got this little extra piece of, of information that you need to know. I mean, it's not... You know, it's not ready for public consumption. You know, let's get together and talk about it, but, but we're not going to teach it. You know, there's no reason to, to go talk to the elders about this. There's no reason to, to do this in a public forum. Let's do this privately where we can kind of keep things uh, hidden and secret. Paul's kind of setting up a warning here, right? Watch out for those people who come in and actually upset entire households through their false doctrine, their false teaching teaching what they shouldn't teach and doing so for their own personal shameful gain. So what's the church to do? We see who these people are and what they're doing, what they're like, what they're doing. So what should the church do in response? You know the U.S. Constitution, great as it was when it was written, apparently wasn't great enough. Because they fairly quickly decided we need to add some stuff. Uh, And they wrote some amendments and there have been numerous since. The first ten, the Bill of Rights. You're familiar. We live in Alabama. You know your second amendment rights. Uh, You probably know your first amendment rights or at least part of it. But the first amendment grants you free speech. You know that's not a biblical concept. Paul actually says in this passage that your U.S. Constitution, well, your First Amendment right of free speech ends when you walk in this door. Because notice what he says to do about these false teachers. Verse 11, they must be silenced. And the word there is a muzzle that you would put on an animal who will not control their mouth. These false teachers, these people teaching a Jesus plus theology, these people teaching a gospel by Jesus plus must be silenced. They must not be allowed to speak. They must not be allowed to teach what they're teaching in the church. They must even be muzzled. Anyone teaching a false gospel... Anyone teaching a a partial gospel, anyone teaching anything other than the whole gospel, anyone teaching a, a Jesus plus type of gospel must not be given a platform. Their freedom to speak ends when they walk in the door. They must be silenced, Paul says in verse 11. The ones that teach, real Christians don't do that. Real Christians don't eat that. Real Christians don't drink wine. Real Christians don't go to movies. Real Christians don't dance. Real Christians don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls that do. All of those sorts of requirements. 
anyone teaching a false gospel, a partial gospel, anything other than salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is not given a microphone, is not given a place to speak. But notice there's more. Not only are they supposed to be silenced, verse 11, but notice what else in verse 13. Rebuke them sharply. That's way too difficult for our sensitive, can't we all get along, everybody's okay, I'm okay, you're okay, everything's fine, world we live in. Paul says, rebuke them sharply. And it is just as, as sharp as it sounds. Go correct them. Go fix them. Go don't, not, not only don't give them a chance to speak, but then you also need to get with them and fix their understanding, fix their theology as quickly and as sharply as you can. Strong enough even to rebuke them. It's not just necessarily a sit down and let's discuss and then we can agree to disagree. It's a sharp rebuke. Of course, there's an aim to that rebuke. Did you notice it? Verse 13. That they may be sound in the truth. Your goal is not to win an argument. Your goal is not, and I never do this, but I'm sure some people do. Your goal is not to put them in their place. Your goal is their restoration. Your goal is their understanding. Your goal is that they might be sound in the faith, which is the same similar language to elders in verse 9. So what's the church to do? How does the church respond to these false teachers? Look at the very first word of verse 10. Four. Another grammar lesson. Paul connects... These the, the rebuking and silencing these false teachers in the church with either. Now the word for could connect to verse 9. Which is why I started reading the passage in verse 9. Elders must, be, uh, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that they may be able to give instruction and in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Oh, and look, in the very next section... He goes, and here's a description of what it would look like to rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine and the trustworthy word. In other words, if, if the four, if that connects that section with verse 9, then an elder's primary function is word-based. It's word ministry. It's the right understanding of the people in the church of the whole gospel. The other option for the four is that it refers back to verse five. And that, that just tells you, Paul writing to Titus, I left you there to have elders in the church. Elders who are like this, verses five to nine, and verse nine who know God's word and can rebuke those who are wayward, verses 10 to 16, here's what those look like. In other words, it doesn't really matter where the four goes. The, the implication of this passage is that an elder's job primarily is word ministry. It's a word function. 
to know, to believe, to understand, to adhere, to hold firm to the trustworthy word of uh, to God's word, to be uh, to to give instruction in sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. In other words, we at Grace Covenant Church will be looking for elders who know sound doctrine, who hold fast to the trustworthy Word as revealed to us in Scripture, who can correct those who disagree with it, who object to it in some way or another, who can silence those who are teaching, believing and teaching false doctrine. Let me make just a couple of applications from this passage. Um, Notice Paul's concern here is not just that churches have elders. He's not willing to say, well, in the absence of people who can clear these hurdles, let's just lower the bar. His standard here and his goal here is not just even quality elders, not just elders who get the the trustworthy word and hold firm to it and can correct and rebuke and rebuke and teach. His aim is the gospel. He's committed to the whole gospel in this passage. His greater struggle and, and trouble in this passage is that there are people who distort God's word. They must be silenced and rebuked. Paul is committed to the gospel. He's looking for men who hold the gospel, who hold the trustworthy word to that kind of esteem, to that kind of a level. So committed is Paul in this passage to the trustworthy word that people would understand God's word rightly and believe it and live by it and teach it. That he wants elders who are right there with him. So how will elders, how will we as people, as God's people, recognize false teaching? How will we recognize Jesus plus, theolo- Jesus plus theology? How will we recognize uh, a partial gospel? You know the story. Preachers use this all the time. Uh, The job of the Secret Service isn't just to protect the president and important people, uh, but it also has to do with um, counterfeit money. I don't see how those two things go together. I don't know how those two things landed in the Secret Service office. I I don't get that at all, but whatever, that's how it is. So the Secret Service protects the president and, and they, they, they seek out counterfeit money. Their job is to make sure there's not counterfeit dollar bills floating around in your pockets right now. So how do they recognize counterfeit money? It, can you possibly study all the possible ways that counterfeiters could counterfeit a 20? The best way is to study the 20 that the U.S. government makes, that the U.S. Mint 20, to study the real one. And when you know the real one, anything that isn't that is a false 20. You're looking for men who know God's Word, 
who study God's Word. And when they hear anything that isn't God's Word, they get a little uncomfortable. They shift in their seat. They wiggle. They start to sweat a little bit. Maybe even get a little red in the face. Because that doesn't sound like what I understand God's Word to say. You can't possibly study all the false teaching out there, but you can study the true teaching. You can study the Bible. You can study God's Word and listen for things that don't sound like that. We're looking for men who know and are committed to studying and understanding the truth of Scripture. And second, we silence these people who teach a false doctrine, a Jesus plus theology. We want this partial gospel eradicated from the church so that we can all know the whole gospel. If you're trusting in a partial gospel, if you're trusting in Jesus plus, well, Jesus plus I homeschool. Jesus plus I go to public school. Jesus plus I don't drink this or I do drink that or I don't eat that or I do eat that or I've done all of these other things or Jesus plus I give to the church. You should give to the church. But that's not adding to the gospel. If you trust in any of your works for your salvation, if the work of Christ is complete and perfect, what can you possibly add to that that would make it better? Anything you add to it makes it less. If you're trusting in anything other than Christ alone, if you're trusting in your works in any way, shape, or form, this passage says, no, 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 you need to trust in Christ and Him alone for your salvation. And praise and honor and glorify Him when your good works flow out of your salvation, that too is of His grace. If you're here this morning and you've never professed faith in Christ and are thinking to yourself, well, hang on, I hear the gospel, I hear Jesus, I get it, but I need to fix a couple of things first. This passage says you can't fix a couple of things first. You never will. This passage says you run to the cross and find forgiveness there and let Him fix more than a couple of things later. Your hope is not in getting cleaned up enough for Jesus to accept you. Because then your hope is in you. This passage says your hope is in Christ and in Him alone for your salvation. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank You Uh, For Christ, who has uh, redeemed us not just from our evil, not just from our wickedness, but also from our goodness. Also from our law keeping. Also from those things that we would hold up and say, look at all the great things we've done for you. Father, we thank you for a Savior who saves us not just from our our moral bad sin, but even those external good sins that look so nice to other people, that look so nice to ourselves. We pray that we would run to the cross. That we would be comforted and encouraged by His perfect obedience in our place. And Father, we pray that You would raise up men who know and love Your Word and who would even silence and rebuke those who contradict it to be elders at Grace Covenant Church. We pray all of this in the name of Christ and for His honor 
and glory. Amen.